Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Hello and welcome to this month's episode of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. It's great to have you with us. When you've known someone for 45 years and you each share a passion for quail, there's a lot to talk about. That's certainly the case today with Dr. Dale and his longtime friend, Roy Wilson. You may know Roy as a prominent outfitter for 40 years who recently retired. His contributions to quail and quail stewardship during his career are many. Let's go to Dr. Dale now with his special guest. Well, thank you, Gary. It's great to be with our listeners here again in in December as we look forward to the holiday season. And uh, again, I always want to thank you guys over there on that end for the help that you and Jonathan Bale do with the uh, putting the magic behind this and Jeffrey Sorrell here in my shop, helping us make it look good and sound good. And we appreciate all y'all and hope you have the best of uh, Christmas holidays coming up. Here we are in uh, mid-December and it's been a very quiet season hunting report wise i've received very few quail hunting reports for west texas which wasn't necessarily unexpected again our numbers are way down but i would always be happy to get your reports good bad or otherwise and so if you've got some reports well please share them with me at d rollins at quailresearch.org d rollins at quailresearch.org i really haven't even been hearing that many reports on south texas but again, they had a late hatch, and so a lot of those people probably won't start hunting until about the Christmas holidays. So again, you folks in South Texas, uh, please uh, give us some of your good news down there, and, and we hope to have it uh, get, get started back on the road recovery. And we got a good boost both in late October and especially on the Friday after Thanksgiving. What a thankful rain most of us got here in West Texas. 2.6 inches here at San Angelo. And what those fall and winter rains mean to quail is that we're going to have a good broomweed crop next year. Now, I'm a strange guy. I root for broomweed, but uh, I can go into that later about why that's important to quail. But we've got a special guest with us today. I've known him for a long time, uh, Roy Wilson. Uh, Roy has been an outfitter for quail uh, last 40 years in the Rolling Plains, West Texas. He retired recently, and I want to be able to capture his memories and his observations about quail and the quail equation here in west texas so roy welcome to the dr dale and quail podcast we're certainly glad to have you thanks for the invite dale i always look forward to visiting with you and same here and why don't you start off with giving us your background give us your elevator speech okay uh well of course i uh, started hunting quail back uh in haskell county texas which was uh prime quail country back in in the day when i was nine ten years old which was many many years ago with my dad uh we mainly hunted fence rows and turn rows back then uh so grew up with quail in the backyard uh bird dogs uh running around the yard went through high school like most folks in west texas and then uh joined the military uh out of high school and spent about eight years in in uh, the military was blessed to end up at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and uh, believe it or not, uh, 
end up as a game warden, work with fish and wildlife up there while I was in the military. That's unheard of these days. And then uh, moved back home in the early 80s. Uh, went to work with my dad in the oil field and quail hunted on a daily basis then uh, as we were making our rounds. And shortly uh, after I moved back here, got an invite from a gentleman uh, on a 42,000 acre ranch uh, called the Hendrick, which we'll get into later, uh, and started uh, started guiding for quail hunts with him and working uh, uh, with him as an outfitter and then ended up my wife and I, Becky, buying that operation out and uh, brought us to outfitting business all the way up through uh, this past uh, January when uh, retired. Well, as you said, we're going to talk more about your days there with the Hendrick Ranch and Crooked River uh, Ranch Outfitters and so forth uh, here in just a minute but uh, let's go back to those early days when did you shoot your first quail and could you tell me pretty close where that happened at uh yes i mean it was there again i was probably nine or ten years old uh my my dad would not let me carry a shotgun much earlier than that but i always had a bb gun and and dove hunted believe it or not with it back even before that that was my yearly christmas present for about seven years and then so I'm going to say it was around nine or 10 years old. Uh, I was his bird dog for many years there, uh, running those turn rows. So I'm going to say up northeast of, uh, I mean, northwest of Rule, which is in, in Haskell County on some of those turn rows up there uh, is where I, I killed my first quail, uh, walking with my dad in those little old pastures and, and fence rows. And for those of you not familiar with that area and during that time, chances are there was a fair amount of milo planted up in there. And when you put a weedy fence row, a uh, brushy fence row uh, between two milo fields, that was pretty hard to beat from quail hunting. So, yeah, you and I were walking very similar paths. I was about 100 miles north of you there in southwestern Oklahoma. But like you, I, my annual wish for Christmas was a new pellet rifle because I'd worn out the one I got the previous year. Exactly. Roy, who would you say were your mentors helped you kind of get started, get your footing in the quail and quail hunting? Well, that, that would have been my dad. Uh, he, he, uh, loved dogs, both greyhounds and bird dogs. We had bird dogs back then that, you know, we didn't know what papers were, but I even remember some of those first bird dogs that, that I had because he let me take them when I ended up at Crooked River hunting. And there was, and, and believe it or not, they were, there was a couple of Britneys in there. One one pointer uh, and uh, patch, which was a, a Brittany uh, setter cross. Those were those were our bird dogs back then. Uh, but my but my dad uh, loved to quail hunt and and carried me with him uh, almost every time. And of course, when I really 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 got into it, when I moved back from uh, out got out of the military, and him and I because of our our uh, contract pumping of all wells and doing that we we hunted all practically six days a week well i've heard uh, the late av jones who was on our board of directors for several years there i've heard him say several times that the reason they moved to albany texas his dad was a geologist and because uh albany, shackford county had more quail than anywhere and that's just about 30 miles east of you there so i know that historically there was some great quail hunting uh, throughout all of that country. And I want to talk to you here in a minute about 
what happened, you know, because that's a question we get a lot. And, and we, we've seen the demise of some of those really good counties. In fact, we're just going to discuss it right now. When you think about counties like Coleman County, Stevens County, uh, Shackford County, uh, in your opinion, Roy, you, you've watched over the last 40 years. What's happened? I mean, they're killing more deer in those counties and have for the last 10 years than they do deer, than they do quail anymore. Dale, I, you know, of course you've got, and and you're in contact with all the experts, as we all like to call you guys, and, and I know y'all struggle with that with that uh, thought also, uh, even from the research standpoint. I I think it goes back, uh, way back even past. I think sometimes we get caught up in looking five years back, ten years, twenty years. I, I think it started. 50 years or, or longer back. And, and uh, I, I hate to say it, I love to eat beef as well as anybody, but I think the cattle had cattle and chemicals had a lot to do with that. But that's just my own personal opinion. And, and I think uh, I think we got to go back from going from from our good native grasses to brush and uh, Texas winter grass and and wanting to plant better grasses for for the cattle and got away from a lot of our natives so i think between cattle and chemicals over the last 50 years plus i think ha has some of that and we have had some uh, uh, weather changes too uh, but i i know i've seen and i made a note on this I, and I, I i tell people all the time you know when i got into this business uh, and as you well know seemed like we had seven or eight really good years quail hunting and then two or three bad years then we'd rotate back in and that has completely reversed in my opinion over the last 20 years now we have maybe two or three good years and about seven or eight bad years yeah and we're going to talk more about that uh, here in just a little while but i'm always and for those of you who are listeners i'm always got my ears open and my antennae up for various uh, hypotheses um I'm not going to poo ha ha any of them. So if you've got one that you'd like to share with me, well, uh, get hold of me again, drollins at quailresearch.org. I'm always anxious to hear various people's explanations about what, what, in their opinion, what went wrong. And I'm going to ask you specifically, not not Roy, I'm, I'm our listeners, if you look at the quail populations really across Texas, according to Parks and Wildlife Roadside Counts, something happened about 1994. I encourage you to go back and look at those graphs. But since about 1994, like Roy said, we used to be on about a five-year cycle, but uh, something threw the cycle off track. And uh, if it wasn't for 15, 16, we'd really be in a world of hurt. So anyway, let's move on. Roy, you were, um, I, I first was introduced to you and I, I'm pretty, I think I talked with you. I was starting my master's thesis up at Oklahoma State working on Bob White and Blue Quail. And somehow I got your name or you contacted me, I forget, but we met up at Stillwater at Oklahoma State University. As I recall, you and uh, one of your partners in crime there, Lloyd um, Payne was with you and I've been knowing, knowing you ever since that time. But uh, y'all were gonna help me collect some birds and I was looking at the various diets and some parasites back then and so forth. So that was how we got started and uh, we've had a, would that be 78? We've had about a 45 year uh, friendship since that time, and uh, friendship that's been built around quail and quail hunting. So, again, I, I've always appreciated your input and your friendship. Let's talk about your days when you were a game warden on Fort Seal. And, and 
I guess I'm going to give you a brief description of Fort Sill, but if I'm wrong, Roy, please correct me. But it's, I think it's about 100,000 acres that's right there on the north side of Lawton, Oklahoma. And it had three ranges on it. From west to east, it went Quanta Range, West Range, and East Range. And it was a pretty popular quail hunting destination. It was by permit only or draw only, I forget. But uh, a lot of good quail hunting in there in Fort Sill. So if you will, Roy, take us back to the mid to late 70s. If we're a quail hunting on Fort Sill, what would we be in store for? Yes, uh, uh, Fort Sill was a, a really good quail hunting, but you know, back in those early days, quail hunting, it seemed like it was popular, but on a very small scale or small group of people, and they kind of kept it to themselves. Uh, more more so was the fishing uh, for the local uh, local folks uh, in the military and, and the deer hunting and the... Uh, believe it or not squirrel hunting which is where i was introduced to and and then and then rabbit hunting but the quail hunting was even back then limited to uh certain certain folks that had the ability to uh own some bird dogs and that kind of stuff but it was excellent quail hunting uh and fort seal as a whole was a was a, a game rich uh uh military base uh and there was quite a few others but had lots of creeks and ponds and so lots of water uh lots of <laughs> lots of fires on that ranch believe it or, i mean on that fort seal because of the artillery and so there was they were constantly things getting burnt off and and which as we know today was you know i still believe that fire is one of our best uh best ways of managing for quail so it was a it was a, it was a great area to hunt as an aspiring plant ecologist back then, when I was working on my master's degree, I would drive down that road on the north side of Fort Seal, between Fort Seal and the Wichita Mountains National Wildlife Refuge. And it was a stark contrast between what you saw on the north side on the refuge and what you saw on the south side, which would have been the north side of the West Range. It looked like the Andes of Peru. And I always thought, man, as a fire ecologist, what a great place. I'd really like to get in there and study it. Never got that opportunity. Obviously, it'd be very hazardous working in where all that unexpended ordinance was. But uh, really a cool place. I, I always enjoyed my time there. And I'm going to give you my first recollections of it. Uh, my wife Kay and I met Lloyd one day out there north of Cache. We were going to pick up some birds, and we met him right north of Cache there and went in there to the headquarters. And we were in her 72 Olds Cutlass. And as we drove through there, about a mile into it, all of a sudden the car just shook. And I thought, well, that's odd. We had any problem with this car. And drove around another half mile and it shook again. And I literally stopped the car, put my head underneath to see if the transmission was falling out of it. Didn't see anything that was obviously wrong. Went around the next little curve and there was one of those 155 howitzers. Uh, the report from that was what was making the ground shake. I, I just always said I'd hate to be on the receiving end of one of those but uh that was my rude awakening if you will to fort seal and real quickly i used to, i still enjoy black powder hunting and they used to tell stories about being able to black powder deer hunt on fort seal where you could miss a buck five times and he wouldn't run off because they were uh, accustomed to all the, the explosions and the gun shooting and then the last story I'll tell you, too, they, they had me in a little trailer house when I was down there visiting from time to time. The first night I spent in there, I didn't sleep a wink because somebody had about eight rattlesnakes and terrariums in there. And every time I put my foot on the floor, it was like an alarm clock of rattlesnakes going off. 
I didn't sleep much that night, but uh, always enjoyed the, the opportunity to visit you guys. And, and there was a guy, I don't know if he was your boss or not, Roy, but a guy named Gene Stout, who I've lost track of over the last 20 years or so, but but he was, um, I guess, the, I don't know, was it, tell me what he was, the wildlife manager, wildlife biologist, what would, it, what would Gene Stout have been? Yeah, he worked as the wildlife biologist. Him and I worked, uh, I guess, uh, side to side. I was in charge of the game wardens, and he was he was uh, the uh, the wildlife biologist and had several technicians other him, Glenn Wamper, Brian Pilcher, and Lloyd Payne, and and we worked together on, on lots of different projects, and that's where I really was able to get into uh, getting more knowledgeable about fish and wildlife and habitat and that kind of stuff was was through him and and his uh his technicians uh back back at that point in time and a, and a shout out to glenn wamper because uh, i worked with him several years thereafter and i understand he may still be up there so a shout out to him but one story i want to tell quickly on gene stout i always considered him a real wheeler dealer and uh, i don't know how broadly this was broadcast, but I'm assuming, I'm assuming the statute of limitations has surely run out by now. He was going to trade 20 bobcats to Iowa game and fish, 20 bobcats for like 200 greater prairie chickens because that East range looked like great prairie chicken habitat. And, uh, as I understand it, he had trapped two bobcats and sent them up there. He got his 200 prairie chickens or whatever. And he'd, sent two bobcats up there and the uh, wool growers association got wind of it and they put a hiatus on that. So he got 200 <laughs> prairie chickens for two bobcats. I thought that was a heck of a deal. <laughs> I, re I remember, I remember that story now, but uh, yeah, he was always, uh, he was always coming up with something. I, I remember uh, uh, another quick story. We, there was a ranch up in uh, Northern Oklahoma that was high fence, which was unheard of back, back then that had, had some elk and it wasn't a very big place and and uh they they was going to give them to fort seal of course we had elk on the wichita mountain wildlife wildlife refuge next to us but uh we went up there to capture those 13 elk i think it was uh with helicopters and wildlife group and game wards and like like ended up killing us all but uh we got it done and <laughs> got to move yeah. back to fort seal there again i don't know what uh what he had to do to get that done, but he, he got it done. Oh yeah. Some always some great stories when you get old biologists together. <laughs> Let's advance now, Roy, to what you, where your, uh, the main part of your outfitting business and your outfitting career took place, uh, down at, at what I'll call the crooked river days. So tell us about the crooked river ranch and the operation you had there. Well, uh, like I said earlier, I was very, very blessed to be able to start, the outfitting business or in the outfitting business uh, with uh, a gentleman down at Fort at uh, Crooked River, uh, the Hendricks estate. And I'll emphasize on that here in a minute, but they, uh, that, that, that ranch was a uh, real uh, game enriched and easy to, to guide on. So it made it, you were able to learn as you went. Uh, but that was started on the 42,000 acres, which was a, uh, was for the benefit of the Hendricks, children's home there in Abilene and, and at the time there was a, a part of the home on the south end and uh, a gentleman that I got started with back then 
we we rocked along there for a few years, and then I made it. My wife and I offered to buy his him out of the outfitting business there at Crooked River, and then we just grew it from there uh, with some satellite operations, but primarily there on the Crooked River Ranch, Hendrick Ranch in Shackbird, Throckmorton, and Haskell counties. Uh, we had some great, uh, uh, oh, uh, Chuck Wilson was our trust officer there the last few years, but we also worked under Walt Richburg and another gentleman, John Menzi, but uh, those, those were the folks we answered to, but they they uh, they gave us a lot, of, a lot of rope back in those days to do what we, we thought was was right and uh there again we had lots of quail back then along with the deer and hogs and turkey and and we even did some waterfowl and dove hunts outside of the ranch well shout out to all those guys you talk about walt and chuck and uh, john i uh, had pleasure working with them alongside you there for several years and always enjoyed their friendship too roy during um I think what did you say you had like twenty nine years of uh, outfitting there on the on the Crooked River. Yep. What was your that, tenure? Right. Yeah, and, that was twenty years on that ranch. Okay, and if I could ask you to describe who was your average, what give me some characteristics of your average client during that time. Well, and and honestly, back in those days, that there wasn't there wasn't an average. They they ranged from the uh you know old backwoods boy from arkansas louisiana to uh alabama and then the guys we were doing a lot of stuff off the east coast uh back then was was looking for uh they had already lost their quail so from a quail standpoint uh uh they they were looking to come to west texas and and hunt quail numbers like we had back then so those guys were even flying in so it it, it was it was the red collar to the white collar they they were very very varied. Uh, we didn't do a lot of of uh, business uh, clients back then. These were mostly individuals, but we grew into uh, customers of customers over a time frame of about fifteen years uh, back then. And um, and first of all, before I forget, shout out to your wife Becky because I know she was. Uh, big part of that and uh, many good memories of working with and visiting with Becky and so forth. And we'll get into some of those uh, adventures here in a minute, but let's, let's contrast quail outfitting Roy with your experience from your experience between West Texas, rolling plains and South Texas. I mean, I can't recall really that many outfitters, that I would say were operational in West Texas, but they're they're kind of a pretty common commodity down in South Texas. Does that jive with what you've seen and experienced? Yes, and, and in a bit big way back then, and still to this day, it, it still applies. Of course, with our bird numbers being down like it is, but yeah, that that South Texas country uh, seemed like they had the big hunting rigs and and the big running dogs. And most of us up in this part of part of the world started off outfitting, uh, guiding quail hunts. Primarily, when I started on foot, along with several other guides that that, that guided with me, and and even up until uh, ten years ago, uh, we were still doing a fair amount of guiding on foot. Even though the buggies came into it, we did that primarily for uh, the clients that we had that that we could 
get them get them closer to the birds and then get out and walk with the dogs uh and and we didn't have the big running dogs like they did in south texas back then uh we we uh and i I was one of them that i really liked to see my dogs most of the time whenever we were out guiding whereas down there they were already into the tracker collars and and all that and uh and we got into it especially some of the other guides that i had over the last 15 years but uh, I, I never got into it in a big way like some of those guys did but but it, there was a pretty pretty good contrast but hunting quail with a guide in this part of the world was just almost unheard of 25 years ago in fact when when the guy that got me started in it from a commercial standpoint uh asked me to come guide for him out at crooked river and said he would pay me to be a guide i for quail, I always thought he was nuts. I never heard of such a thing. Well, glory days, as uh, <laughs> as uh, Bob said, uh, Bruce Springsteen sings a song there. We often get caught up in glory days, but we surely do relish those great memories. I knew several of your guides, and again, uh, I'm going to say I made my first trip over to Crooked River probably in the late 80s, early 90s. And first of all, if you've ever been down there to the lodge at the Crooked River Ranch, uh, I, I've probably been there 50 times and 49 times. I'm sure I was sure I was lost before I got there kind of thing. It was isolated, but uh, that held a lot of appeal for a lot of things. Uh, if you were interested in finding that, uh, that dark spot on the map there to hunt, that was a, a great, yet isolated place and i always enjoyed it but some of the guides that i remember uh first from being barefoot bob and uh barefoot you can elaborate on any of these as you choose to or throw rocks at them whatever you choose to. alan herman who's the biggest practical joker in the world bar none and then horace gore uh and anybody in texas um recognize the name Horace Gore because of his long tenure at Parks and Wildlife and now he's uh, been the editor for the Journal of Texas Trophy Hunters for many years but uh, he was into setters as well so birds of a feather do flock together but uh, again I just um, if you want to make any comments about your, those guides or your other core guides I'd give you that opportunity Roy. Well those three uh, like you said do do come to mind back when we were getting started um and and, and ha all three of those were characters in their own right barefoot bob bob richardson you know he could guide and hunt for anything he was born a hundred years too late uh, in his life he's he's still with us uh, over in stonewall county now and still traps hogs and uh, his son guided for me for years uh one quick story whenever i hired bob the very first time and uh he he came to the lodge to to what i would call an interview and he walked up to the table we were sitting at and sat down beside us and he had uh, his son and daughter with us which were only probably six years old back then five six years old and each one of them sat down on each side of him and crossed their legs and uh asked bob so how many kids you have and he, his comment was i've got one male and one female he was a, he was a dog dog's man dog uh, he, he, he was the lead lead there and you could tell stories about him from now on alan herman of course uh you know a prankster but 
very, very knowledgeable. And, and thanks to Alan, when he was with NRCS, uh, I, I learned a lot about the workings of NRCS and along with a lot of those other NRCS folks and, and how Alan guided for me. And, um, he, he, his BS was so deep. He didn't have to be a great guide. He could BS his way through most of it. Uh, and, and Horace Gore wasn't far behind him. Horace Gore was one of, uh, one of those early, early time, uh, guides too, but, uh, very knowledgeable and, and was able to use horse for contacts around the country. And, uh, really, really those guys were blessed to be, get to know those guys. Yeah. And, and uh, they could really sell the sizzle. Let's put it that way. And that's certainly, <laughs> as we can all appreciate that's an important part of the, of the whole hunting experience is somebody that can sell the sizzle and do the good storytelling and so forth. Uh, quick yeah. story about barefoot. And I'm going to do a podcast with barefoot at some point in time in the future. But as you'll recall, Roy, we took uh, some Bob Propagators hunting there. I don't know, 94, 95 time frame somewhere in there. It was cold that morning. You and I had gone out with the kids, three kids, and uh, you had a setter named Bandit and he treated a bobcat. And the boys <laughs> yeah. got that bobcat and brought it back to the lodge. And uh, they met Barefoot Bob at lunch. And uh, Bob said, what are you going to do with that bobcat? And I said, well, we were going to skin it. And he said, you want me to help you? And I looked at them boys and I shook my head. Yeah, you want him to help you. And so <laughs> I swear, and I, ain't, I bet Bob had that bobcat skinned in less than five minutes. He was, uh, I tell people he's the closest thing Texas has to Crocodile Dundee. So, That's exactly, exactly right. Okay, let's uh, briefly talk about our some of our greatest memories there at the Crooked River Lodge, and, and that was the Bob White Brigade, because that's basically where the Bob White Brigade hatched back in December 1993, and we held our first camp over there in uh, June of uh, 1994, and this June we'll be celebrating 30 years, and uh, the, the concept has really taken off and blossomed, and but it all got to start right there. I'll, I'll never forget back there in the in the back dining area there of the lodge, there was a, you had a painting on the wall of a setter that was pointing down at the table kind of thing. And I've got a picture of me and you and Alan Herman, Chip Martin, and uh, Nathan Anderson, Rocky Vincent, Rocky Vincent, and A.B. Jones, all sitting around the table there, planning the route, if you will, about the Bob White Brigade. And um, could not have asked for more cooperation and, and the help and the great opportunities to get that off on a good footing than uh, than what we had there with you and the folks at Crooked River. So I've always appreciated that. We uh, we used to make an annual trip to the Quail Unlimited conventions. Of course, you were going to market your wares, and we were going, I guess, to market our wares too, taking those kids up there and, and showing the other people around the nation what we were doing. And we've had some great times up there. And I'll always remember, I think it was in Kansas City, that uh, one of the last trips we made, uh, we had all those kids in white shirts marching and calling cadences and bringing up the rear was uh, you and Becky and uh, Becky's mother uh, marching in cadences too. <laughs> Total buy yep. from all the staff, and I always appreciate that. Yeah, um, I remember that. And that, that special hunt I talked to you about while I go where Bob skinned the bobcat, I got to tell one quick thing. And I've got this story written down. It's called 48 Hours about how it transformed a lot of the ways that I think. And uh, I'd be happy to send that to you. If you want to, you can email me and I'll send that to you. But okay. basically Roy and Becky and I were sitting across the table there in the, in the dining area, eating goose kebabs at Friday night. And we looked over at each other 
and I could read their eyes just as they could read mine about how do we get ourselves into these things, these donated hunts like this. And uh, it was cold the next morning, but we had a good day. Roy went with us. And then, as I recall, there was a funeral on Sunday, and you couldn't go. But Barefoot Bob went with us. And, of course, that was a treat in itself. But as as I left that Sunday, I uh, had a chance to just tell you and Becky again how much we appreciated y'all's um, selfless efforts in, in helping making it work and your just, just everything you do there. And I'll never forget I, I'm paraphrasing this now, but, but you looked at me and said, sometimes we just need to get back to where we started, which means well, sometimes we got to turn that crank back to when we were 13, 14 years old, and we got to keep that, um, keep that cycle going. So again, great, great memories. And, and like I said, if any of the readers want to get that article from me, just email me and I'll send you a copy. Roy, I'm going to move to another section now of the podcast that I'm calling it outdoor or i'm sorry outfitter diaries and so i'm going to ask you about some of the things that you've learned in taking quail hunters hunting over the last 40 years and the first thing i have is what are some of the most common mistakes that quail hunters make well uh you know i i felt i felt like and i like i said i grew up hunting quail and, and did that with a 20 gauge and, and even a 28 gauge with my dad and i feel like that is that is all the, the, the gun that a, that a quail hunter needs is a 20 or 28 gauge. And really and truthfully, you'd have never got this done back in the day. We did get it done for three shells in the gun. Most people were shooting pumps or automatics. I, I think having uh, having automatics with five shots is, is one of the best biggest mistakes that, that, that I ever saw. And that was because you got into people shooting uh, uh, into cubbies and not shooting the bird. Uh, that that was one of the the big things at the start. Uh, I just felt like there was no reason to be shooting five times at a covey or even a single bird. Uh, you're just wounding birds. And then uh, another thing was was uh, and and this were the guides and good guides that and I had a, a lot of them uh, really came to be uh, along with good retrieving dogs was marking down birds. Uh, guys would just shoot knock feathers and assume that bird went down and 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 he probably did but instead of within five or ten yards of where he saw feathers fly it may have been 25 or 30 yards uh, that uh, so two or three shells marking birds down doing away with the, the crippling loss we wanted we made it an issue to try to recover every bird that we we knew that we hit uh, so that that's some of the mistakes uh, and and safety issues. There were always safety issues. Just needed to be aware of each other and where they were at. So uh, that that was kind of my deal. Did you ever have any close calls safety wise? You know, occasionally we would have one where maybe guys were on the outside circle coming in. And a bird, a wild bird, you know, a bird get up out of nowhere and then they maybe pepper us, but nothing, nothing serious, nothing uh, of of any extreme. We were very conscious of that the guys were, you know, uh, and keeping them from shooting low, shooting low birds and peppering a dog or something like that. Well, you were fortunate there because I know y'all, you put a lot of hunters through the uh, 
to the regime there. And uh, there's certainly we can all appreciate that you got to be on top of that 100% of the time or something can happen in a hurry kind of thing. Roy, I think it was you that, uh, again, we visited with 30 years ago or so, and we were talking shop and so forth. And uh, I believe it was you who said y'all recommended number six shot or somebody did. And that seemed odd to me because I'd always hunted with seven halves or eights or sometimes even nine shot. But if that was your opinion, well, tell us why you, you, you thought that heavier shot was important. Yeah, that heavier shot, I, st I still to this day think for, for grounding birds is still a better shot. Uh, and there again, there's no reason to shoot number sixes in a 12 gauge. There's no reason to shoot a 12 gauge, in my opinion, but that's my personal opinion. I just, I just felt like that number six shot uh penetrated killed um uh, birds better and and grounded them better than a seven and a half or eights or whatever uh as long as your gun was pattering good and and the way i explained that to people I, that really kind of questioned me on that i i'd pour four or five number six shot out in my hand and then a, a bird in the other hand and you look at that number six shot when you really really think about it it's, it's not a very big sh uh, shot uh, and the other reason for that is most folks are not very versed on hunting quail and their shot that they think they're taking at 15 or 20 yards. By the time they get their gun shouldered and, and out there, they're probably more likely 25 or 30 yards. And that heavier shot's going to penetrate better at a, at a further distance. Okay. Uh, let's let's move into some. Um, I think I might have had one other item there. Back during those early '90s, and again, kind of at your heyday of guiding there in that part of the world. Uh, did y'all do supplemental feeding, baiting the roads, or, or how, how did you approach that during that time? Uh, we did. We we baited the roads in areas where we knew there was good concentrations of quail. We did that a lot. And each guide was pretty much responsible for ba for baiting or feeding those areas. And we just fed the road edges uh, back then. We did a little bit with barrel feeders on a ranch that we had leased to the west of us that had uh, very little natural feed on it and, and had some success over there. But yes, we, we fed, fed roads a lot back when we were uh, hunting quail on a pretty consistent basis and again I, my my memory is fuzzy but i think it was barefoot bob that told me or maybe in you that that you used uh, wheat more so than milo for that baiting is that correct that we did back then and it because it was more accessible uh it, i prefer milo but but the wheat was w way more successful there was a wheat cleaning facility 10 miles up the road from us. Uh, and so we had pretty consistent access to uh, clean or re-cleaned uh, wheat back then. And so uh, that, that, that was partially why we were doing the wheat. Okay, we got about 20 minutes or so left, Roy. I want to move into some uh, questions as far as your opinions, your experiences as it relates to habitat concerns you know we, we often talk about axe plow cow fire as tools to use for managing habitat uh which of those do you think were, were best used or most misused in your part of the world during that time well uh 
of course, I'm not, I'm not a scientist. I just, for what I've seen over the last 50 years, I, th- I think we look at our time frames <clears throat> too short. Uh, and we look at five, 10 years, 15 years down the road. And I think we need to be looking at what's transpired over the last 50, 60, 70 years. Uh, I think I personally, and I know this doesn't go set well with a lot of folks, but I think the cow and chemicals uh, have been uh, mismanaged uh, over the last 50 years and, and uh, uh, has, a, has a lot to do with where we're at today with our, our quail numbers. Uh, you know, we've from a grassland to a brushland uh, and now chemicals to try to control that when had we maybe seen things earlier in our in our management practices with uh, how to manage this rangeland with cows, we might not have had to be in a situation where we use chemicals. And of course, fire is still, in my opinion, uh, one of the best use of range management, but it's almost impossible to be able to use that uh, on a regular basis. Uh, and, and you get a lot of pushback from that. Uh, and then, of course, with that cattle grazing, we've we've seen uh, strong encroachments during the winter for Texas winter grass. And of course, the cattle guy liked that for his winter grazing. But uh, but we did some stuff at Crooked River trying to burn and uh, do do away with some of our Texas winter grass and try to get back some of our uh, native grasses. So uh, there again, I, I'm sure that's not going to set just real well, but I, I think that some of that needs to be looked back into. I don't necessarily go along with some of the uh, other things that, that pop up out there, but but that's my personal opinion right there. Okay. Uh, and a shout out to one of your old guides, Alan Herman. You were giving accolades to Alan a while ago. He was the NRCS guy over at Albany for many years. And Alan was a graduate student under Henry Wright. Dr. Wright was the father of prescribed burning out there at Texas Tech. And so Alan was one of the first disciples for the use of prescribed fire. And uh, I always looked at uh, Shackford County as being a, a focal point for prescribed burning between the exploits of Alan Herman and Gary Frankie and Rocky Benson, some of their crew over there. And But I understand the politics of burning over in Shackford County have, have changed quite a bit over the last couple of years, which is unfortunate. Uh, but yeah, certainly prescribed burning um, could and, and perhaps should be used much greater. Roy, one of the, the things that I think I noticed when I was uh, first visited Crooked River and then maybe I came back 15 years later kind of thing was that increase in Texas winter grass. And you alluded to that in just a minute, uh, just a minute ago. But uh, Texas winter grass, for those of you who don't know, it is a perennial winter grass and it's kind of uh, the, the epicenter of it is right in that. Haskell, Shackford uh, area right in there. And when you get a wet fall like we've had this year, we're going to have a lot of Texas winter grass next year. And it's not a, it may be a wonderful thing for cow grazing, but it ain't very good for quail because it crowds out some of the more desirable plants. So uh, I, I've always had that on my antenna items, I guess, just to uh, be concerned by, about that. And I think one of the things, one of the reasons, or several reasons why it's primary spread. One is, according to some of our scientists up at Vernon, uh, anytime mesquite canopy gets over about 35% canopy cover, and that just plays right into the hands of Texas wintergrass. And there's a lot of country that uh, satisfies that criteria. And then the other thing is, I think we've seen a, 
a change in our uh, cattle management uh, practices over the last 40 years because largely because of winter wheat pasture and Texas winter grass got a lot more fall fall calving cows than historically uh, we might have had spring calving cows and that's probably or could have had some impact on our plant community so just things for you to put in your cap and think about um, Roy we often talk about buffer species when it comes to quail out there at the research ranch we're always proud of the fact that we've got a a lot of different species of shrubs and mesquite and uh, cat claw acacia and different things that are producing fruits and those fruits can sometimes feed the coyotes instead of quail and then we got uh, other buffer species like the rat rodent population i want to talk about the rats here in just a second with you but uh, the rodent population the rabbit population and when we've got good populations of those it tends to help take the pressure off for quail my question to you is in the outfitting business did you have to rely on buffer species? And you made some mention of it earlier, like like hogs and geese, to take the pressure off your quail hunting. You bet. That and we learned that over time that you know we had to be as versatile as we could possibly uh, be to 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 survive one year to the next. When you had your ups and downs in your in your quail, which that was the the most volatile uh, species that we had to deal with in our outfitting was was the bobwhite quail even though it could be our biggest income source in the good years so we had to we we spread out into the hog hunts uh which you know you never could kill those off any even if you wanted to or tried to and then the geese and ducks and the coyote hunting even uh, with uh, some guides I, I ran into uh the dove hunting took a lot of pressure off of uh, you know trying to generate enough income to operate year-round in, in the outfitting business. So yes, those, those other species were very, very important in our survival over, over 29 years at Crooked River. As an aside, you mentioned dove hunting. Growing up again there in the Rolling Plains up at Hollis, Oklahoma, I never knew we had a bad dove season really until about 15 years ago and out there at the research ranch. But during that time, we've only had maybe two or three years out of the last 15 that I thought were decent dove years i know you've really focused a lot on dove outfitting the last 10 years or so is that just my impression or, or do you think dove numbers are becoming more finicky too well, well I, I i don't think it as goes back that far now the last two or three years have been very finicky and we do it in a big way or did do it in a big way i do feel like they the the numbers have moved to the west a little bit more like uh, uh, like the quail numbers had over the last 15 years, but that this corridor up and down 277 is uh, is always been very good from Wichita Falls all the way down Laredo, and 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 that that I've never seen what I call a bad year to the last two or three years, uh, and I'm hoping from what I've seen from some of the research and. Texas Parks and Wildlife that 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 freeze three years ago or two years ago uh, it, it really sent us into a spiral downward and and hopefully that's going to continue to bounce back over the next couple of years if if we don't stay in some type of drought situation. Well, I hope you're right and, and ditto for the quail population as well. And you mentioned the fact, um, and we've seen it again 
if we had wanted to go quail hunting, Bob White hunting in Rolling Plains 40 years ago, 50 years ago, we might have been over around Breckenridge, or we might have been down yep. there at Coleman. But that yep. that uh, that option basically moves west, or has moved west. It's passed up Shackford County now. It's passed up Jones County largely. Uh, Baylor County, a lot of that country used to be as good as it got. In your opinion, in your experience, you, you got any feeling for that western wave, if you want to call it that? I, I, I really don't, Dale, unless it, there again, it goes back to cattle and chemicals and we get into uh, some, some of those sandier soils over in Stonewall County and then moving southwest down towards Colorado City and Big Spring, you know, but, but even those have just kind of gone dormant the last couple of years. So I, I don't, I don't have, I don't have an answer other than South Texas. I don't. Yeah. And I know you're like me and, and again, we, we're not mad at South Texas. We're, we're glad they're having it, but we just keep saying, golly, why can't we go back to that? You know, three years out of five being pretty darn good quail hunting. And we just haven't seen it the last several times. I uh, hope we get out of this La Nina situation and we have another 15, 16. I'm, I'm hoping to live for that. Roy, if, uh, again, you've retired now from the outfitting business. If, if a young man or, came to you, it was 30 years old and uh, wanting to say, Roy, I've always been intrigued by your business. I'd like to get started. What would you advise to them be? I'm not a hundred percent sure, Dale, other than maybe look for another career. It, the, <laughs> the business was, was uh, unheard of in my day when I got started. So it, it was in this part of the world, it was not hard to get, it was hard to get started, but you could, you could, afford to make mistakes and and uh and and then pick your boots up and and move on uh down the road with it uh, back in the early days it's just so expensive from from leases to property available to pickup trucks you name it uh it's just so expensive to get started these days uh i i've told guys uh, young young folks over the last 20 years you know get you if you like doing this Get you a uh, uh, get you an education in in marketing, sales, and and business, and you might be able to do all right with it if you if you still want to get into it. But it it's just a it's just a tough business. But you know, if I had it to do over, I would have leaned more. And luckily, I had my wife Becky to do a lot of that. But the the marketing and sales and 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 business side of it, which I never intended to get into uh, that side of it, uh, it is very very important in in our industry anymore and so you got to be very diligent about that those, those kind of things so it's it's a it's a great rewarding business uh, but it's not something you get into to uh, see how much money you can make it's it's just the experience and the people you meet like yourself and the Alan Hermans uh, the Lloyd Paynes, the 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 folks I've Still hunt with me after thirty years. That that's the the experience is what we look look for. And so anyway, I've been blessed all the way through it. Well, and again, we hope if that young person does step in to fill your shoes, and, and I often wonder. I hear that old George Jones song about who's going to fill their shoes, and and that has a lot of um, that has a lot of. Uh, concern for the for quail people like me and you because again our numbers have dropped a lot 
and uh, we're striving to make things better. But I'm going to put you on the put my finger on you here for the last couple of questions, Roy, and I want you to look into your crystal ball. And again, based on your experience and your intimate knowledge of uh, quail happenings, especially in that area right in there around Jones County and surrounding counties, where do you think the future of quail hunting is headed in West Texas? Dale, I hate to say it, but it, it, it appears to me at least right now, uh, that it's continuing to spiral downward. Uh, and a really quick story on that. Uh, Becky and I got our real estate license here back at the beginning of the year. And, and a gentleman that was trying to buy a piece of property asked me about uh, the, a piece of property up uh, north of Stonewall County. And, and, and his emphasis was he wanted to buy something that that was going to have quail on it, you know, hopefully five or 10 years. And, and I, I'll be honest with you, I had to advise him that, that goes in hand with this, that, you know, it, buy that property for other reasons besides what we might see five or 10 years down the road with quail. And if we get our quail back more, more power to us, but I, I, I I'm, I don't like what I'm seeing heads down. I think the future of wild bird quail hunting is, is in South Texas. Uh, and we just may see more and more release operations up in, in our part of the world. Well, I, um, I hope that's not the case. And again, uh, we, we struggle with that annually, certainly for the last four years about, uh, idiopathic decline or why, why we why birds are not coming back and you know coffee shop wisdom has it that if it rains we'll have quail and if it don't we won't well uh despite what the la nina forecast was we're starting to fall winter off with pretty good rainfall that's gonna that has already brought us a great crop of texas and california fillery which are important to quail and I, I think it's going to bring us a great crop of broom weed next year so again my hope is that we put two years together like that and uh, I know we were singing the blues in 2011 and 12, and, and then all of a sudden in 15, 16, we're singing praises. So I'm hoping that uh, we can pull that quail out of a hat again. Roy, I, I forgot to mention one thing I'd like to get your impression on. Did y'all have blue quail there in that part of the world uh, where you were hunting at in the, uh, until the, say, the late 80s? We did. Haskell County was kind of a mix. Uh, if you stayed there, like I said, in those, fence rows and, and old home places. It was primarily uh, Bob Watts, but you could get down on those breaks along the river, uh, that being the Double Mountain and Clear Fork. Well, not the Clear Fork, but Double Mountain and Salt Fork. And you could find find a fair number of blue quails. Sure could. Uh, and they've been gone for, I don't even remember how long, but for, for a long time. Well, they disappeared again from my radar screen about uh, December of 1988, up there where I was raised, up there in the Hollis. Cross Red River up there, and it's always been an intriguing disappearance to me. And again, we're we're working on ways to try to bring those blue quail back because they always served as some drought insurance when the Bob Whites didn't do well. The blues tended to do pretty well. Roy, yeah. anything else you want to share with our listeners this morning? No, I mean I, I appreciate this opportunity, and and uh, like I said, I've been blessed to have a career that few people. Uh, have have had the opportunity to do and and just meet uh meet the people that i that i've i've uh, been able to meet over the last 40 years uh of course 
I would have never made it through all this without my wife, Becky. And, uh, you know, one of the, uh, one of the things that, uh, I always liked, uh, of one of your main sayings back in the day or still today, I know is I was blessed to be able to run with, with good dogs. Uh, and, uh, you being one of those lead dogs back when we was running dogs, we always had a lead dog and, and dogs to back them up. And, and, uh, I feel like, I feel like all these years you've been one of those lead dogs and, and I've been, uh, been blessed to be able to, to follow in that. So, uh, thank you for that. Well, again, thank you on so many fronts. And uh, again, we wouldn't have a Bob White Brigade if it hadn't been for y'all's generosity and philanthropy there and uh, offering up the Crooked River Lodge for us. And so you'll always, you and Becky will always hold a special place in my heart. And I appreciate your perspectives and your outlooks on quail. And uh, again, we hope that uh, we're telling our grandkids um, here two, three years from now about what great quail hunting is and getting them back out in the field behind no setters and uh <laughs> gary we're going to turn it back to you i know you and roy have uh, had a lot of interactions too because you helped us with many years there at the bob white brigade and enjoyed their hospitality there at crooked river so turning it back to you in the studio and want to wish all of our listeners a merry christmas and happy holidays and hopefully looking for better tidings a year from now so keep the faith Thank you, Dr. Dale, and you're right. I go back with Roy quite a few years. I've always admired his work and valued his friendship. Thank you, Roy, for the great conversation and insights today. If you'd like to know more about the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast and the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation and its special work, go to the website, quailresearch.org. Past episodes of the podcast are available on the site, along with details about research projects and the research ranch. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Appreciate you joining us today. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.